Major depressive disorder affects more than 16 million American adults in any given year. As much as 30% of the time, antidepressant treatments fail to work. But in thinking about what to do next, often doctors leave an effective treatment on the table without even trying it, electroconvulsive therapy. ECT was developed in 1938, and while there have been improvements along the way, 80 years later, it's still used to treat patients. ECT is used for the treatment of depression and other serious neuropsychiatric conditions. It is rapidly effective in alleviating depression. It's rapidly effective in resolving suicidal ideation. And it really can be a lifesaver among our most severely depressed individuals. That's Dr. Sarah Lisenby, Director of Translation Research at the National Institute of Mental Health, where she also directs the Non-Invasive Neuromodulation Unit. During ECT, an electrical current is passed into the brain of a sedated patient. That alone has been enough to make many people call it electroshock, with the reputation of painful convulsions and broken bones. But Lisenby says the environment of an ECT procedure is much more relaxed than you might think. The first thing, let's say, I was explaining to you what was going to happen when you got an ECT treatment, you would walk into a medical procedure room, you would lie down on a stretcher, you would have an intravenous line, which is the plastic catheter that allows us to inject the anesthesia. You are monitored, your vital signs are being monitored, you're in the presence of physicians and nurses who are expert in providing ECT and expert in providing anesthesia. And once everything is in place, the anesthesia is injected and you go to sleep. And you wake up when the procedure's over. You're asleep for maybe about 15 minutes and during that time, a small controlled amount of electricity is applied to the scalp and that induces a brief seizure lasting typically no more than a minute. And during that seizure, the only thing that you really see happening is based on the brain waves. So we put sensors on the forehead so that we can see the seizure activity going on in the brain, but the body isn't moving. Everything looks relaxed. But while the body is relaxed, there's a lot going on in the brain. Research tools such as functional brain imaging have allowed doctors to learn that ECT can be one of the most beneficial treatments a depressed person can receive. We know that it releases all of the brain's major neurotransmitters, which are the chemical signals that neurons use to talk to one another. And these neurotransmitters are also affected by our antidepressant medications, but to a lesser degree. ECT is robust and more potent in its effect on neurotransmitter release than medications. And this increased potency may in part explain why it works much more effectively than our medications and why it works so rapidly. In fact, ECT has the highest response and remission rate of any FDA-approved treatment for depression. Yes, it works on most people. I'm talking about remission rates upwards of 70 to 80 percent. Whereas medications typically have remission rates in clinical trials closer to 30%. The term treatment-resistant depression, which is used to describe situations where a medication or a series of medications have been tried and don't work, that's actually the majority of cases of depression because the antidepressant medications don't work for such high numbers. And even in those situations of treatment-resistant depression, ECT remains the most effective and rapidly acting treatment in that condition. So it's really a vital part of our 
standard treatment for our most severe cases of depression. But despite the effectiveness of ECT, a lack of understanding and those old gruesome images portrayed in movies have created a stigma that scares patients and even physicians away though this treatment literally saves lives. Another big issue is the stigma of ECT it still persists, you know, after you know, decades of it being shown a very effective strategy for severe depression. So in my practice, we tend to spend a lot of time with patients and families trying to assuage a lot of their fears and anxieties about what the treatment is what it is not, and try to do a lot of reassurance and education about the treatment. Yeah, it's a very calm environment, you know, where patients are treated and people are under anesthesia. They don't feel any pain. They, you know, there's no violent convulsions and things like that. That's Dr. Dan Maxner, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan. Just like any other serious medical procedure, there are side effects from receiving ECT treatment. With conventional ECT, most people have some degree of memory loss. And I'd like to explain some about the types of memory loss. So we can think of it in two types of memory. One is the ability to learn new things. And the other is the ability to remember things you've already learned. So these are called anterograde amnesia and retrograde amnesia, so anterograde meaning going into the future. Everybody that has ECT has some degree of anterograde amnesia, meaning while they're getting the treatment, they have an impaired ability to learn new things. For example, let's say a person had ECT on a Friday morning, and they went out to lunch with their family on that afternoon. They might not remember the details of that lunch they had after the ECT. However, when ECT is stopped, when you finish having your course of ECT or when you transition to maintenance where the treatments are less frequent, that ability to lay down new memories returns. But that problem is much less likely today. Now you wouldn't receive the same ECT treatment your grandfather might have. ECT today is used in specific ways that help minimize memory loss following treatment. There are ways that we do ECT these days and have continued to work on other strategies with how the electrical stimulus is administered, and there's ways for us to limit the memory side effects. And one strategy is using right unilateral ECT where we stimulate just one side of the head to start the seizure. The whole brain still gets excited and has a full seizure, but stimulating just the right side of the head to start the seizure, we avoid stimulating the left side of the brain where there's, for most people, their verbal memory sits, and you disrupt that a lot less with the right unilateral treatment. But that doesn't mean ECT would be the first treatment your doctor would try. Experts say it's difficult to determine what kind of treatment to use and when. Maxner's new study suggests using ECT as a third line of treatment if options such as medication fail to help. That's different than it's often used now. Typically, ECT is a treatment that many consider a last resort. In our practice, ECT isn't necessarily ever a last resort. In the right scenario, just like I mentioned with patients who might be in a life-threatening condition, ECT can actually move ahead of that last resort notion and be used much sooner. Patients may be, you know, again, very psychiatrically ill, either medically ill or dangerously ill where suicidal thoughts or behaviors may be overriding the thought of waiting for medication or other strategies to work. 
so in general, though, ECT tends to be a later stage type of treatment. There are multiple reasons that can lead to ECT being used as a treatment of last resort. Some of these reasons have to do with variable access. There's some parts in the country where you have to travel long distances to find an ECT provider, and there may be limitations in coverage in terms of insurance reimbursement and so on. But I think that probably among the leading causes of ECT being used as a treatment of last resort has to do with stigma. Stigma not only about the treatment itself and also about the side effects that the treatment can cause, particularly memory loss, and stigma about depression and about suicide. The illness and the treatment are both stigmatized in a way that prevents people from receiving the treatment that they need that could really be life-saving. And it may do that very quickly, which is why this form of treatment is important for those who struggle with severe depression and suicidal thoughts. The speed of response of ECT is critical, especially for saving lives. When depression becomes so severe that the person begins to feel that their life isn't worth living, that they'd be better off dead, that their families would be better off without them, and they begin to have thoughts of killing themselves and thinking about ways to do it and assembling the means to act on those ideas, their lives are in jeopardy. And the sooner that ECT, when it's medically indicated, can be given to people who are going down that path, the more likely it is that they will be brought out of that depression and a suicide can be prevented. However, ECT isn't one and done. Follow-up treatment plays a critical role in treating depression long-term with ECT. Depression is like any other medical condition. Let's say you have high blood pressure and you have to take a medication to control your blood pressure. Yes, you'd have to keep on taking that because if you stop that medication, the high blood pressure comes back. It's not that much different when we talk about depression. It is a medical illness that requires longer-term treatment to manage it and to support brain health. An acute course of ECT can induce remission, but it's not permanent. And it's critical to have a maintenance treatment to prevent relapse. Depression, we've learned over the years, can become a chronic and relapsing condition where a person may have the depression come back months down the road. And maintenance ECT in combination with medication can be important for preventing relapses. And while ECT is much less likely to produce side effects than it used to, doctors and researchers continue to work on improvement, creating different forms of therapy to solve mental health issues. Magnetic seizure therapy, or MST, we use magnetic fields which pass through the body as if it was transparent, like, you know, from an MRI device, magnetic resonance imaging. We use strong magnetic fields, but they're rapidly alternating. And these magnetic fields induce tiny electrical currents in very focused regions of the brain. This allows us to deposit just a small amount of electricity exactly where we want it to go and spare the rest of the brain. I view MST, magnetic seizure therapy, if successful, as being an additional tool in the toolbox. There may be patients who continue to need ECT, to achieve remission from their depression, but if a form of treatment that had less or even no memory loss, such as MST, could work, who wouldn't want to start there? You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.net. You'll also find archives of our shows there, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. 
Our writer this week is Ariana Kraft. I'm Reed Pence. Coming up, Bliss Frank injuries. No one is immune, whether you're an athlete or not, when Radio Health Journal returns. A first-ever large-scale study of dementia rates among older lesbian, gay, and bisexual adults finds they are similar to rates in the general population, but their access to health care may be markedly less. Research reported at the 2018 Alzheimer's Association International Conference finds that high rates of depression, stroke, and heart disease in the study population may contribute to the level of dementia. Dr. Heather Snyder of the Alzheimer's Association. The number of people living with Alzheimer's disease dementia is increasing, as is the population of LGBT older adults. Respectful and responsive healthcare outreach to LGBT communities could result in earlier diagnosis and better outcomes. LGBT individuals access services such as healthcare less often than others and are twice as likely to age alone. Their unique challenges make access to information and resources a challenge. This underscores the Alzheimer's Association's role for the LGBT community as a place to turn for guidance and support. More than 22 million Americans are living with asthma, a complex, ever-changing condition that requires active attention. Some patients let their attention slip because they think their asthma is well-controlled when it's really not, and that can be a dangerous misconception. But now, asthma patients have a new digital interactive shared decision-making tool to help them communicate with their clinicians to properly manage their asthma. The tool is a partnership between the Chest Foundation, the Allergy and Asthma Network, and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. It encourages patients and providers to work together to improve self-management skills and helps to guide the dialogue about treatment options, weighing benefits, risks, costs, and patient preferences to choose the best treatment plan. Doctors hope the shared decision-making tool can improve communication, patient satisfaction, and overall outcomes. You can find it at severeasthmatreatments.chestnet.org. Breastfeeding is known to be good for baby, but now there's more evidence of how good it is for mom as well. A study in the Journal of the American Heart Association shows that the overall risk of stroke is 23% lower in postmenopausal women who had breastfed compared to those who had not. Among breastfeeding black women, the stroke risk drops by 48%. The benefit increases for women who breastfed for longer than six months as well. Dr. Lisette Jacobson of the University of Kansas School of Medicine, Wichita, is lead author. This is one more reason why, if you are pregnant, you should consider breastfeeding as part of your birthing plan and continue breastfeeding for at least six months to receive the optimal benefits for you and your infant. Other studies have reported that breastfeeding may reduce the risk of breast and ovarian cancer, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. Stroke is the fourth leading cause of death among women over 65 and the third highest cause of death among older black and Hispanic women. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.